From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. This autumn, a new immersive history experience is opening in Winchester, entitled 878 AD. It aims to recreate a key moment in Winchester's history, one that involves a battle, the Vikings, and Winchester's pride and joy, Alfred the Great. It's a moment, or or rather a year, that's often seen as the point that determined the future of what would soon become England in the face of its Viking invaders. The experience, which I'm really looking forward to trying out myself, is a collaboration between Hampshire Cultural Trust and Ubisoft, creator of the Assassin's Creed Valhalla, using visuals that were created for the game in an interactive and immersive way to tell stories not just about that battle, but also the context of the people and places around it, especially Winchester and the Kingdom of Wessex. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about this and we're going to be teasing apart what we know about the historical background and what a project like that can do to help us communicate history. So to do that, I'm delighted to welcome today's guest. I've got Professor Ryan Lavelle with me, who is Professor of Early Medieval History at the University of Winchester. Now, his specialisms include Anglo-Saxon Winchester and King Alfred, and he's also been heavily involved in this project as a historical consultant. So, Ryan, thank you so much and welcome to Gone Medieval. Uh, Thank you very much, Kat. It's a pleasure to be here. So I can't wait to hear more about this project. And can you just start off by explaining what exactly was your involvement in it? So I'd been involved with the Assassin's Creed Valhalla computer game and also with the Viking Age discovery tool for Ubisoft. And around the same time, I'd also been in communication with Hampshire Cultural Trust about various aspects of the early medieval past for Winchester and trying to represent that more. And there was a point a few years ago when I realised actually I could help bring these two interests together because I knew that Ubisoft were looking at representing Anglo-Saxon Winchester in the game and had some remarkable graphics for this kind of evocation of the early medieval past for the city and there was a point when I said having to have these conversations because of course working with a company like Ubisoft there is an aspect of secrecy about the project and I had to sort of say I'm involved with Hampshire Cultural Trust. Can we see if we can get you together with them? And both parties were really interested. And then things went quiet for a while. And then Hampshire Cultural Trust, at a point during the height of lockdown, they were seeing the possibilities here. They were thinking about the possibilities of what they could do for this. And they got back in touch with me and said, well, we're really interested in developing this experience. Would you like to be involved? And of course, I was absolutely delighted to be asked. And uh, so this kind of idea of 
bringing in the computer graphics, but actually in a kind of physical environment was a really exciting possibility, along with the aspects of a traditional museum as well, in terms of the display of some of the artefacts that Hampshire Cultural Trust have in their stores from the various excavations and city. And of course, there are some quite spectacular, or there is one particular spectacular artefact. And as I'm saying this, I'm not quite sure how much I'm able to say about that particular artifact <laughs> but uh, but basically this whole sort of thing of the museum the computer game the idea of live action experience as well all coming together in this one space along with the possibility of using some of the graphics from the Assassin's Creed Valhalla program and using that and then importing that into the visitor's own experience using a phone as well using an augmented reality app and that's kind of exciting because actually what it then does is it allows the visitors to then step out into the streets of Winchester and follow a ninth century journey around the streets and use the phone to get these graphics, these images of the early medieval past into the view of the modern city streets. And uh, I've played with the beta versions of this and it's, it's kind of cool, actually. <laughs> It's like great fun. Yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like an amazing and such brilliant use of technology. So I'm going to a bit later on get back to some of the challenges involved in being in between as an academic and working with these companies. I want to get back to that a bit later on and also a bit more detail about you know what people can experience. But I wonder if we just should go into the background a little bit more, so into the historical background. So this is very much your sort of specialist area, really. And this particular year, so they've named the whole experience 878. Now, some of our listeners, especially those who are keen on the Vikings, will, will be very familiar with what happens, but, but not all, I don't think. So I wonder, could you take us back to 878? Why that year? What happened? And why was it so important? Yes, yeah. 878, it's a pivotal year in the history of uh, Wessex and the history of England and potentially also the history of Western and Northern Europe more broadly as well, in that it's a point when this great Viking army, as it's referred to in a contemporary source, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, has been rather successful around the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England. So this is at a point when there isn't a kind of unity of the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in early medieval England, that uh, there were four separate kingdoms in what we now call England and uh, the Northumbrian kingdom and the East Anglian kingdom and part of the Mercian kingdom in the Midlands had all been taken over by Vikings in some way, either through agreements made by the local ruling dynasties or, or members of the local dynasty or just the, the abject takeover has happened in the, the case of uh, East Anglia. So the West Saxon kingdom was essentially standing as the remaining kingdom with its own ruling dynasty. Part of the Mercian kingdom was semi-independent and there are debates about the independence of part of the Mercian kingdom, but essentially Alfred in the West Saxon kingdom was essentially retaining some degree of independence and had been, over the course of the previous decade, had been involved in various military campaigns against the Vikings and sometimes buying them off, sometimes defeating them militarily and essentially holding them off. And I think at a point in the winter of 877 to 878, a group of Vikings who were in Western Mercia at that point 
seem to have realised that they could catch the West Saxons napping and uh, basically took over the West Saxon kingdom by, or took over a big chunk of the West Saxon kingdom, probably not all of it, by seizing a royal vill, a royal estate at Chippenham in Wiltshire. And quite possibly uh, they'd been attempting to catch the king himself uh, because it was uh, royal villes were places where the rulers sort of travelled around from place to place. Uh, they didn't spend all their time in one place because the court was simply probably too big to be able to be supported by one place for a long length of time. And so the Vikings, by seizing Chippenham, essentially controlled a big chunk of the West Saxon kingdom. And Alfred goes into hiding, essentially, in the marshes of Somerset. In the Somerset levels, he eventually establishes a base at um, a very small place now in Somerset called Athelney, which was, it was actually an Iron Age hill fort, but a hill fort in terms of the Somerset levels is not much taller, not much higher than the kind of ground around it, but essentially establishes himself at this place, this royal estate in Somerset, and tries to gather followers to that place and tries to send out word to those who will remain loyal to him. And what seems to have been going on in Wessex is that because Alfred was one of the royal sons of the West Saxon dynasty, there were also other members of the royal family. And what seems to be possible, what seems likely is that other people within Wessex may have been looking to follow one of the sons of Alfred's brother, Alfred's dead brother. And essentially, there was a possibility of establishing a puppet king by the Vikings, that the Vikings might have been able to establish a puppet king. But luckily, from Alfred's perspective, there's just about enough support within the West Saxon kingdom for him. A number of the aldermen, the regional governors of the West Saxon kingdom, evidently supporting him. And essentially, he's able, just after Easter, or a few weeks after Easter in 878, after these months in the Somerset levels, kind of fighting this guerrilla campaign against the Vikings in the area, he's able to bring people together to a place called Edgebutt Stone, somewhere around the borders between Somerset, Wiltshire and Dorset, and essentially call together those who would be loyal to him. And this results in a battle at a place near to that site at Eddington in Wiltshire. And this battle seems to have been decisive because the Vikings were then besieged at a fortress. That fortress could well have been Chippenham. The Vikings may well have gone back to Chippenham. They're besieged to such a length of time that uh, the, the Vikings go on to have to eat their horses, which is seen as a, a terrible thing in the eyes of contemporary Christians. So this battle at Eddington seems to be a decisive moment in the history of the West Saxon kingdom because it's ultimately a decisive victory for Alfred. He doesn't kill his Viking enemy. The Viking leader is known as Guthrum, and he was the leader of that part of the great Viking army. But he manages to defeat him and manages to force him to surrender. And 
the decisiveness of this battle is a result of the Vikings retreating to their fortress, which could well have been Chippenham, the place that they had originally seized. And they're besieged for, I think it's two weeks, and West Saxons are seizing the horses of the Vikings from outside the fortress. I don't, I don't know why the Vikings aren't bringing the horses inside the fortress, but that's a detail in one of the contemporary sources. And sort of driven to starvation, essentially, driven to surrender to Alfred and that surrender then leads to the baptism of Guthrum and essentially the carving out of territory between Alfred and his erstwhile adversary Guthrum who's now known by the baptismal name of Athelstan and that kind of indicates that Guthrum is seen as part of the West Saxon royal family. Alfred stands as his godfather in this baptismal ceremony and there's a kind of grandeur to the baptismal ceremony. In fact, it involves a period of time, the giving of gifts and no doubt hunting as well, which is setting up this idea of peace between Alfred and his now godson in the aftermath of this battle. And this peace agreement results in territory being granted over to Guthrum and the peace agreement is something which results in the establishment of a line of demarcation of territory between those who are part of Guthrum's army and those who see themselves as adhering to Alfred's side, essentially. And it also allows Alfred to seize a little bit of Mercian territory, essentially. So the area which hadn't been taken over by Vikings from Mercia, Alfred, in the wake of the mysterious disappearance of the remaining Mercian king, who has the name Chelwulf, in fact, he's known by some wonderful coins, more of which have been discovered in recent years, depicting Alfred and Chelwulf together. So Chelwulf had previously been his ally. Around about 879, so we're talking about a year after 878, Chelwulf disappears off the scene and Alfred is able to kind of agree to this demarcation of territorial interest, spheres of interest in southern and eastern England. And essentially by allowing Guthrum's to become a territorial king in England, this then allows Alfred to consolidate his hold on the West Saxon kingdom and slightly beyond it, establishing what is known as the Kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, which was a kingdom which continued until the early years of the 10th century under that title before it becomes a kingdom of the English. And that I think he's a little bit sneaky by Alfred in some ways because essentially he's making a bit of a deal with somebody who had essentially been a raider and a pillager across parts of Wessex, parts of Mercia, parts of indeed East Anglia and essentially legitimising his hold of that territory. And the baptism ceremony, it's obviously something which allows that to be done legitimately as far as Alfred's concerned. And as far as we know, it's Guthrum remains a good ally for Alfred. Keep your enemies close, <laughs> rather. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's it entirely, yes. I mean, he's not able to kill Guthrum and maybe he never wanted to. Maybe that opportunity to divide territory allows Alfred that opportunity to push further in terms of his kingship and... It allows the West Saxon kingdom that breathing space as well to consolidate its defences. So I think we see evidence of the, the burgle system of systems of fortresses around the West Saxon kingdom. There's some debate as to 
precisely when particular boroughs were established around Wessex. But I think by and large, we can say there is some direct connection between organising defences around the West Saxon Kingdom and that moment of victory in the year 878. And it's in the wake of the year 878 that allows Alfred to bring scholars to the West Saxon court as well and sort of devise new forms of kingship, really. In the model of the Carolingians, I think this is a really interesting thing, that Alfred appears very much as a contemporary European king in terms of the sense of royal majesty it's very much in the the carolingian frankish mold sort of following in the footsteps of charlemagne how much of a tyrant really was julius caesar and it's very interesting to think about why it's Caesar in particular when there have been many political assassinations in the past millennia, why Caesar's has been the one that is brought up again and again. Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? In the Jurassic, you see dinosaurs get bigger and you see meat-eating dinosaurs grow into things like the size of buses. And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? She is always derided as this sort of terrible adulteress, but at least as old as Homer, at least the 8th century BCE, is a counter-tradition in which Helen doesn't go to Troy. She's never Helen of Troy, she's Helen of Egypt. Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss from BBC Radio 4 Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip I thought in that moment oh my god we've summoned something from this board this is uncanny USA he says somebody's in the house and I screamed Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. You can really see, I think, how that was a very strategic, it was a very politically shrewd move, I think, to do this. If you can't beat them, you might as well just to come out of place. And and so what we see, of course, afterwards is, is as you precisely have mentioned just now, this impact that this had, all the things that Alfred was able to do. So I wanted to sort of use that as a bit of a, a lead into Winchester and talk a little bit about that, because Winchester, of course, was very much Alfred's big city, wasn't it? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the 
background to Winchester and what did Alfred do for Winchester? For Winchester, there's a kind of ninth century phase, a late ninth century phase to Winchester. And I think we could justifiably say that Winchester is Alfred's city in many ways, in terms of the way in which the layout of the city in the ninth century fits the chronology of Alfred's reign. So Winchester was a Roman town, essentially, that becomes a walled city in the Roman period. So the the walls around the city are Roman. And like many towns and cities across Britain, when the Roman power essentially dissolves in the 5th century, around about the 5th century, there's some sort of, there are various debates about that, but let's let's say Roman imperial power dissolves and, and towns and cities become abandoned by and large across the former Roman province of Britain. But with the advent of Christianity for the Anglo-Saxons, Roman places become more meaningful and Winchester became an important place for the West Saxon royal and episcopal power. And so Winchester, particularly for the bishops of Wessex, the bishops of what become the bishops of Winchester, Winchester has this importance. But it it wasn't really a city as such. It was a kind of collection of ecclesiastical buildings in a former Roman city. It wasn't sort of reoccupied as a city when the West Saxon bishops start to reoccupy it in the 7th century. And it's not until the 9th century that we see its occupation as a city, bringing people into the city to lead the lives of craft and industry and sales and trade and markets. And this, I think, is a a little bit of centralised planning that's going on, maybe even a little bit of opportunism, thinking, well, the Vikings represent this threat to the peace and stability of the kingdom. So people need to be able to trade and do their craft activities in places of safety. And so let's bring the people within the safety of city walls. And I think that's something which is argued for Anglo-Saxon Winchester, that uh, essentially you've got the link between the size of the city walls. Sorry, this gets a little bit complicated, actually. You get the link between the, the size of the city walls, the length of the city walls, and the way in which Winchester is administered in terms of the number of hides of land. A hide is a kind of assessment of, of land. And there's a very close relationship between that size of the administrative area associated with Winchester and the lengths of the city walls. And that essentially it's thought, and I'm not the sort of main person to say this, so there's scholars like Martin Biddle, who's done a tremendous amount of work for Winchester, who have suggested this and, and discussed this, that it's thought that Winchester may have been a kind of blueprint city for other towns, other fortified towns, boroughs around the West Saxon kingdom, because that closeness of the administrative area and the length of the walls there's a kind of ratio between the length of the walls and the formula which is used for thinking about the resources associated with it. So without going into all the maths of measurements of yards and poles of wall, a pole being about 5.5 yards, I think, is 
in terms of measurements. I often try to convert it to metric in order to make more sense, probably getting a bit of trouble for metricizing some of the, these measurements. But uh, essentially, there is this sense of measurement of the size of the city. And I think one of the, the fascinating things about Alfred is this idea of the obsession with weights and measurements. I think it's one of the sort of abiding things that comes out of our reading of Alfred. And sometimes I wonder about that idea of the Alfredian minds looking at the city with the link between him and his bishops and thinking, well, how could a city be modelled for other cities around Wessex? How do we divide the resources that we've got in order to ensure that every pole of wall is defended by a certain number of people who do the work on the wall and maintain the wall and defend the wall when necessary? What are the measurements for that? Let's look at where it works successfully. And okay, I'm slightly biased in being in Winchester and thinking about this, but let's think about where this works successfully and then apply it to other places around the West Saxon Kingdom. And it's really interesting to think that Winchester may have been this kind of blueprint town that where the, the layout of the streets according to this very regular grid pattern is something which is 9th century. It may date from slightly before Alfred's reign, so maybe Alfred is looking at this and thinking, how can this be applied across the kingdom? But uh, the jury, I think, is still out on that question. And because so much goes on in Alfred's reign, I think, you know, potentially we can ascribe it to Alfred's reign. But the layout of the city, the sort of regular patterns of the streets and the back streets and the high street known as Chapstraats, the trading streets in the, the late ninth century, this layout kind of looked to people for many, many years. It looked Roman to people until Martin Biddle started doing his wonderful excavations of the city and looking at the layers of stratigraphy for the roads. And then there was this realisation as part of that project in the 1960s and 70s, there was this realisation that actually this Roman-looking street pattern was, in fact, an Anglo-Saxon street pattern. And that idea of the Romanness of the city of Winchester, this kind of neo-Romanness, if you like, this new Romanness of the city, I think played in really well into the Alfredian ways of recalibrating the West Saxon kingdom in the wake of the year 878. So the city is essentially thriving as a result of the peace that has been agreed between Alfred and Guthrum. And other towns and cities around Wessex, there's some 30 towns and cities around Wessex which are, are kind of planned towns essentially in Alfred's reign. And then that goes on to become the foundation, if you like, for other towns in England in the Midlands when Alfred's daughter Athelflaed sort of picks up this set of ideas and she does her own thing with them. Edward's Alfred's son is also trying to do some things as well and this is essentially the basis for what's sometimes known as the reconquest of the Dane law. I tend to think of it as a conquest of the Dane law because the West Saxons had never really rules those areas anyway. But this essentially gives the rise to the West Saxon dynasty to be able to assert themselves over these other territories in Mercia and, and indeed beyond. So this point in time, it's not actually an exaggeration, is it? I mean, it does have such a significant impact, not just on relationship with the Vikings, but also urban development, not just in Wessex, but further beyond as well. So it's, yeah, I can completely see why this was chosen. But 
One thing that occurred to me when you were talking as well, and, and actually to lead us into this whole experience now and what, what people can experience with the 878 AD project. I love Winchester as well, and I've been there a few times recently. And you do walk down the streets in the centre and you are actually walking through that system, that grid system, the high street. You're walking pretty much where Alfred did and you're you're seeing these things that he did. You've got you know, the gates to the city, still some of those remain, and there's a big physical presence there. So this obviously will be what the, this project is working on. So can you explain a little bit how exactly, because there's so much good archaeology there in the city, how then is this new experience helping people understand what they're looking at? Yeah, I think this is a thing for us who understand something of the layout of the city and some of the documents associated with it, some of the archaeology associated with it. You, you're kind of walking around these places and go, oh, oh there's a re- some really interesting excavations took place there 20 years ago or, or whatever. But people who aren't spending their evenings reading about this sort of thing aren't aren't necessarily aware of this and you can sort of walk around Winchester it's a you know it's a lovely city to visit but there aren't any grand standing buildings from the 9th and 10th centuries that leap out at you as Anglo-Saxon buildings and the cathedral's a wonderful building but it's after the Norman Conquest and so the imprint of the pre-conquest past isn't that obvious for it and the 878 AD experience is an attempt to try to evoke some of that past to get a sense that there were buildings there there were people who were there over a thousand years ago 1100 years ago i mean it's that sort of sense of the city has been an occupied thriving bustling place for 11 centuries and trying to kind of get across the way in which that physical past was actually there the ghosts of these people were there and bringing those ghosts to the streets via digital means I think is quite a fascinating thing and it's it's a really exciting project it's a really imaginative project to do that so there are various sort of discussions about the Assassin's Creed Valhalla and the Viking Age Discovery Tour in terms of the ways in which the kind of storytelling has to certain decisions have to be made about where the, the storytelling and the gameplay have to kind of take precedence over the exactness of the archaeology but actually what this is doing for this is evoking a story it's evoking a sense of possibility and awaking the imagination for visitors which is quite an exciting thing to be doing and to be attempting and going well these assets from Assassin's Creed Valhalla as they're, they're known as assets in the trade the digital assets are there and let's just try to go well Here, these are possibilities of the evocations of the past, which are allowing us to get them across to visitors, well, in a very engaging way, but in in an immediate way. There's an immediacy to it without necessarily trying to sort of delve through the different layers of stratigraphy and archaeological reports and and so on. Yes. (laughs) Now, and, and I think there's something about that visual aspect, isn't there? Because it is really difficult, especially the Viking Age, 9th century Mm. and things sort of pre-conquest. I get questions all the time, you know, we want to go and see the Viking Mm. England and the Viking this, that and the other. And there's so little to actually show people the same for sort of Anglo-Saxon. Obviously, we've got certain churches, we've got some buildings that have Mm. got remain date back to this period but really it isn't there and having that visual aspect is very very powerful for people i think so that's 
again, what games like the Assassin's Creed games do is, is actually give you that sort of visual aspect. But I do need to ask you, and I've done the same sort of work myself, so I'm also familiar with it. But in terms of being an academic and being an academic historian, you've already talked a little bit about certain decisions having to be made. A lot of the time, we don't know things for certain. We don't know exactly what things look like. And obviously, they need to create a complete building or create a complete wall or whatever. I mean, how do you find that from an academic perspective? Do you find it challenging? Do you worry that if they don't get it right, maybe they shouldn't do it at all? Do you worry about that accuracy? How do you find that from a sort of personal and professional perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I worry about it, of course, as I'm sure you have done in your experience for it. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to get these things across. It's important to convey meaning at, from these representations. And this kind of sense of making these decisions, I think I accept that uh, the people who are developing games or developing TV programmes have to make certain artistic decisions for what would they be called ludic decisions in the case of the gameplay. They have to make certain decisions that kind of cut across the heavyweight aspects of the history. So thinking about Assassin's Creed Valhalla, there's a kind of issue of scale, making buildings higher than they necessarily were in the past or making the sort of scale of a city smaller, making the scale of the landscape smaller so that it can be played. I've spent hours playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla in, during lockdown. I spent hours playing it and I've completed a very small portion of the game, a disappointingly small <laughs> portion of the gaming. But, you know, if, if the, the scale of, well, early medieval Wessex, to take an example, if the sort of scale, the ground scale were compared to reality, nobody would ever complete the game. So these sorts of things have to be kind of changed slightly. And I think the other thing is that these are things which are bringing people to the historical past in a way that hasn't been possible before, actually. It's wonderful to see how many of my students are playing these games and coming to the Middle Ages with a sense of the past. And they're aware that it's, you know, it's not 100% accurate reconstruction of every aspect of the ninth century. They're aware that there's elements of storytelling, but that storytelling then gives us an opportunity to think about the real history, to think about the real archaeology that goes into these and to be able to show examples of the Winchester reliquary and the Discovery Tour or the construction of a sail, which, you know, thinking about the Norwegian part of the Viking Age Discovery Tour, which I know you were involved with, Kat, that sort of aspect of the amazing sort of quality of a sail. I think it sort of conveys that, which is is part of the Viking Age ship technology that often we forget about, but uh, it kind of gets that across like a sail has to be a really prestigious and really high quality thing for many of these vessels so those sorts of aspects allow an exploration an imaginative exploration in a way that that isn't necessarily possible with the textbook and reading through the sources so these little decisions are kind of things that have to be made but I think there's enough of us who are grown up enough about it to be able to step back and say oh yeah this isn't quite right these are decisions that have had to be made but look this is allowing us to think about it in a way that then allows us to re-engage with some of these issues 
Absolutely. And I think it is such a, a great way in and new generations, new people. And it does work. It does bring people to museums. It brings people to buy books and to go on to study things at universities. So I think uh, I completely agree that it's absolutely worth it. And hopefully for people who are interested in the Assassin's Creed, you know, the many fans of the Assassin's Creed series will be drawn to the uh, the, the 878 AD experience to see about its, its visualisation in a three-dimensional world, in a, in a real eye in real life and also hopefully people who are aware of it but don't necessarily spend hours and hours playing computer games will also be able to engage with what has been produced and I think it's great that the stuff that's been produced for Assassin's Creed Valhalla can come to a wider audience of people who aren't necessarily spending loads of time playing computer games. Absolutely. And then we as academics, as museum professionals, all get the benefit from it as well. So I think this is a, is a great example of, uh, of how that works. And then contextualise the history and what that means and what that means for not just the southwest of England, but actually the whole country's history, I suppose, in a bigger picture, which is fantastic. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Well, Ryan... That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And I personally can't wait to go back to Winchester and try this out. Yep. So so when it's open, people can go. But if they go onto the website, which I believe is 878ad.co.uk, they can find out more. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So you've got the tickets and bring a mobile device in order to do the augmented reality stuff as well and, and sort of extend the experience around the, the streets of Winchester. I'm looking forward to seeing people wandering around the city, looking at buildings in a completely different way through their mobile phones yes precisely they're transporting themselves back to 878 AD wonderful Ryan thank you so much it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you thank you so much for sharing all this with you okay thank you it's been a pleasure thanks thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit where I was joined by Professor Ryan Laval so do check out this experience and make the journey to Winchester if you can if you enjoy these episodes and would like to help other people find them please do follow and leave us a review and share with all your friends and family it means an awful lot to us and don't forget you can also subscribe to our medieval mondays newsletter just look in the episode notes for how to do that thank you again my name is dr kat jarman my co-host matt lewis will be back on saturday and i'll be back again next tuesday have a great week When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe 
at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code medieval at checkout.